So, Charles Niduka, thank you very much for joining us, um, or, or joining me, I should say, uh, on this first episode of our podcast at Future Visual. And this podcast is called Building New Realities. And thank obviously, you for having me. Great, great to have you here. And you know, obviously, when we were thinking of the title, Building New Realities, we were thinking, obviously, Future Visual, we work in, in immersive tech, it's about building new environments. And we, we've obviously met to discuss your work and uh, and I really want to sort of dig into some of the work you do in the medical field because you you know you are building new realities for for people there but uh, obviously in the context with what's going on uh, this week um, for those of you in the future this podcast is being recorded on March the 20th 2020 we are in the approaching the eye of the COVID outbreak and obviously Charles works in the medical profession so we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of that uh, in a bit but yeah this is a sort of era of building a new new reality I couldn't have possibly imagined. That's right. It's very strange times we're living in uh, just now. Um, as you say, we are uh, a little bit behind what's going on on the continent. We are anticipating things to get significantly uh, worse. Uh, next week, personally, I'm uh, going into training uh, on the respiratory side because uh, it's going to be all hands on deck. So, uh, yeah, very interesting times to be... Uh, to be alive. So yeah, just to give a bit of background on yourself, you are a, a consultant, plastic, reconstructive and cosmetic surgeon. You've obviously been a or worked in, uh, in the medical sector for 25 years, is that right? That's right, yes. But you're also co-founder and chief scientist of MTech, which is uh, a company building uh, hardware for within the immersive sector, but also for the rehabilitation of, of patients. So I guess just uh, to find out a bit more about your background, you know, when did you start training as a doctor and when did you decide that you wanted to move into uh, reconstructive surgery? So um, I, it's embarrassing to say that I, I was influenced by, by TV. Uh, I watched a documentary when I was about 15 about a little boy with facial uh, deformities. Uh, it was on, on the BBC about a boy called David. He was, he was abandoned at uh, an orphanage um, in South America. And a surgeon uh, used to go and do missionary work, and he uh, operated on the, on the child over the course of several years and rebuilt his his nose and mouth. And it was an extraordinary story. It followed him over over a period of time, over, over years, and eventually they actually adopted this this child. And uh, that was really inspiring. The idea this child would have basically died uh, without this uh, this very compassionate approach, and recognizing how his facial disfigurements would cause him to be cast aside by his own parents. Um, so that was my decision age, sort of 15, 16, and, and I went into, into medicine, uh, lucky enough to go to, to Oxford for my undergraduate, but always had this vision to do uh, reconstructive plastic surgery, partly because I recognised, maybe, maybe being black, maybe recognising some of the struggles my parents had, I was always aware that uh, how one looks affects how one is treated, how one interacts with the world. Um, uh, I had a bit of bullying myself at, at school when I was sort of uh, seven, eight, which I think maybe influenced also my, my decision-making, recognizing that if you can't integrate into the world around you, that can cause some really bad uh, outcomes. And I saw some of that in, in my personal life with my, my siblings. So yes, I, um, I went into, into training. Uh, uh, my first medical jobs were in Imperial College in London. I was lucky enough to work with uh, an amazing uh, professor called uh, Aradazi, who was a surgeon, but also a really uh, amazing technology pioneer. He developed lots of new techniques. 
and learned a huge amount from him. And then I, I sort of uh, went on to my surgical training uh, in and around London and ran a lot of training off in, in France and Brazil and then uh, became a consultant uh, in 2006 uh, in East Grinstead, which is the regional centre for plastic nuclear surgery for all of Kent, all of Sussex and parts of Surrey. Amazing. So where was this, uh, where, this, where was this child? Which country was he, was he living in when you saw this TV show? Let's see, I think it's Peru. He was Peruvian, I believe. And uh, he is now, he actually said so he was adopted by, by the surgeon and uh, he's now a medical photographer uh, living in, I think it's in Chicago there in, uh, now. He's, you know, he's, he's a fully grown adult. So this was, you know, 30 odd years ago. Um, but yeah, just amazing, amazing, um, an amazing story. Uh, Desmond Wilcox was the, was the chap whose documentary it was. Uh, and um, yeah, it was really extraordinary how some, you know, there's no medical background in my family, but how something, I know, it, it triggered a spark in my brain that set me on this course. I feel like that's what I want to do. And, and yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to do it. Yeah, that's 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 a beautiful story. That's amazing to hear. So, I, you know, those those people who see something when they're quite young and it just flicks a switch and inspires them from a very young age, and they just kind of very clearly know what they want to do. Uh, I, I'm always slightly envious of those people because they've had a very clear path from a young age. You know, I think personally, I've more had to sort of leap from uh, from um, you know footpath to footpath and sort of carve it out and go. Okay, I think. This is what I'm inspired by, and this is what drives me. But you know, um, nothing is clear as, as as seeing something like that and going, "That's what I want to do." Um, and when I was thinking about us having this conversation, I was really interested in uh, you as a person. Where how far you were interested in that psychological aspect versus you know just the sort of the mechanics? I was like, "Oh, you know, I know Charles. He, he seems a really lovely guy." But I wonder whether he's sort of a surgeon. And, and from the technical point, or whether, you know, in the context of building new realities when you're performing facial reconstructive surgery, I mean, you've kind of answered it in a way because the first thing that inspired you was, was changing someone's life. But I was just interested in how much preparation or how much conversation goes into that psychological side of your patients, whether that's something you deal with or whether you liaise with um, other professionals. Yeah, so um, that, that's a really good point. So one of the things that, um, so to preface things, so my, my, my sister who uh, was just one year older than me, just every year, well, she was 14 months older than me, she, um, she developed symptoms of schizophrenia at uh, age 12. And uh, she was in about in that hospitals from her mid-teens uh, uh, until she, well, she, she actually, she, she died prematurely for, for slightly unrelated uh, reasons but um she she really struggled with that, with that. and my, my older brother who's four years older than me he he suffered with depression and actually took his own life so i had a quite a close um interaction with mental health issues uh, for some time i've always felt that the work that i do is almost in a way it's almost the the surgical armor of psychiatry in a way because of, as i say how person looks can affect how a person feels, how a person's treated can affect how a person feels, and how a person looks can affect how a person is treated, if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, and so when I was at Oxford, I was lucky enough to, to do my integrated degree on psychological disorders. So I really wanted to fully understand more deeply about uh, mental health, and I guess maybe selfishly also wanted to understand myself and, and uh, you know, um, 
um, you know, we know that there are there are some um, there are some genetic uh, related factors in, in mental health conditions, and whether there was something I, I needed to understand about myself. The surgery itself, as I say, is almost the um, the sort of the the applied arm of, of mental health when it comes to someone's appearance. So in many cases, if someone's had a serious accident or cancer removed and they've been cured of that initial uh, acute issue, what's left behind is the scarring, the disfigurement, which they have to live with. And, and in many cases, I've, I've had patients tell me that, you know, I can live with, you know, for example, there's one lady who's had breast cancer. She had a breast removed and she said, I can live with the breast cancer and having had the mastectomy because I can get dressed, put my prosthesis in my bra, and, uh, and to go out into the world and nobody need to know. But she developed facial paralysis in, in her case and it's there all the time. So the moment she wakes up, she goes to the bathroom, she looks in the mirror, and the first thing she sees is this reminder of this, of this. in her case, it was a tumor caused by facial paralysis, which she has to live with all the time and with all interactions with people, uh, with strangers. Uh, patients often describe wanting to hide away, especially in school holidays when young children are around who mm. stare and be unkind unintentionally in, in most cases, but make the person feel very self-conscious. So, so surgery um, is, in a way, uh, a form of, of treating the symptom of an underlying issue, but which principally is uh, affecting how a person is received by society and to allow them to, to perhaps better integrate into society because we recognize that isolation, uh, as I've experienced with my brother, uh, can have very disastrous consequences. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like you 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 you're really grounding it in the the emotion. You're really basing everything you do in uh, what stems from our most powerful organ, which of course is our mind and our perception of events and our perception of ourselves. Uh, the way you've described it is you're very aware of um, people's um, internal processes and their perceptions of themselves. And, and as you've just said, the the surgery is a part that can help adjust that external perception which is obviously manifested internally absolutely absolutely and so when i, I set up the service um so i got into uh, facial paralysis as a as a subspecialty within plastic surgery because of, of a chap i saw um now it would have been 2000 and i was working in london at royal london hospital in whitechapel and we had a huge number of patients come through with horrendous injuries we had the helicopter service so patients who had you know been run over by, by a train or by, by a lorry would come in with multiple injuries and uh, where they were they'd really been in a you know a high stress situation if they're coming in on a helicopter it was life or death so yeah. in a minute absolutely absolutely yeah yeah some really some really horrendous uh, uh, injuries and there was one chap who, who sat quietly uh, in in the uh, we had this really incredibly busy clinics and and so you were having to see multiple patients and didn't have much time to allocate that to them. There was one chap there who really caught my attention. He was sitting very quietly, very subdued, and uh, my, my then consultant, I was a trainee, he was my boss, he said, yeah, just going to see this chap, you know, don't want to start with him, but he keeps coming back to the clinic and mm. I don't know what the deal is. And uh, for some reason, I just took some time with it. And he had a very, you know, in the scheme of things, what seemed to be a very, very minor issue. He had his, his eyebrow on one side just wouldn't move, it wouldn't go up, and you know, he was asking, could something be done about this? And um, it seems as though, you know, maybe you're, you're a young guy, he was in his 30s, you know, why are you bothered by such, such a minor thing in the scheme of things? And, uh, and it transpired that he had been, um, he was from uh, Iraq, and 
he'd been he'd been tortured uh, by Saddam Hussein's henchmen uh, and been held uh, for for many weeks, uh, beaten in all sorts of ways imaginable. Uh, in many cases, places that you wouldn't necessarily see on the surface. But at one point, he was he was hit uh, severely on his head, and that injury damaged the, the branch that the nerve that supplied his forehead muscle. And you know, he clearly had uh, sort of post-traumatic stress, and, and part of it was that uh, whenever he looked into himself, he was triggered by the fact that his facial uh, is what what's relatively minor asymmetry that one brow was lower than the other and wouldn't move. Um, that that was a trigger for him, and actually the treatment for him was actually relatively straightforward. Uh, but I was only understanding the motivation of why he felt the way he was and why it caused him to, to withdraw and, and was constantly having to sort of relive the past was this, this external manifestation. So anyway, so I, I, I treated him and in his case very minor, it's just actually just rebouncing his brow. Uh, uh, and the, the, the change in his whole personality, you could see, you know, he developed this sort of, this almost, um, this change in posture, this change in his, his cell. It's something intangible, but anyway, it, it was it was quite remarkable, given that we were doing sometimes you know four or five hour surgery with some people and seeing how this one uh, adjustment for this patient could have such a big impact on his on his outlook. Yeah, that's amazing. So it was the trigger when he saw that. It's like when we look in the mirror, and sometimes if yeah. we're feeling bad, you know, you might have a, a negative internal view, or it might be like you've got to do this. You know, we're such sort of task-driven yeah. machines, and occasionally, yeah. off one's sort of working on one's internal state, you'll see yourself in the mirror and just be kind of supportive and encouraging. But every time yes. he, was, he was looking in the mirror with that brow, it was just bringing it all back, and then yes. sort of feelings of the actual pain and how he probably couldn't move forward in his life. Absolutely. He was, you know, he was literally introspecting. He was looking into himself, but also into the past. And obviously, if you want to move forward, you need to look out into the world and also look into the future. And, and yeah. he was doing... So, um, yeah, so it, it was quite... And so I, I really dug into facial paralysis, and it wasn't something that was really, to a large degree, taken very seriously um, in the UK. And I, you know, I served a service at, at the hospital, the Queen Square Hospital, uh, uh, with a great team of people, uh, psychological therapists, uh, physiotherapists, speech language therapist, uh, an eye specialist who deals with the issues of patients not being able to close their eyes. And, uh, you know, very quickly, we were, we were sort of overwhelmed the number of people from all over the country to come and see us uh, uh, for, for treatment. But there was this large body of people who had intact nerves, but who had facial deformities that, that were mostly due to the fact that the nerves weren't quite functioning properly and they weren't candidates for surgery as such, but they needed to do things to help themselves in terms of retraining. Now, if you injure your arm or your leg, you go to see the therapist and tell you what to do, and you can monitor your progress by just looking. You can see your range of motion, you can see whether you're able to, to bend your arm or your leg in the same way that you can on your healthy side. With your face, it's different because you need some feedback, and in many cases, we're asking patients to, to work with a mirror to, to help to rebalance and retrain their facial muscles. And patients come back to me week after week, month after month, and, and they weren't making progress. I was trying to dig into why. Um, one of the reasons uh, was that they were not actually looking in the mirror. They were, they, they found it distressing. And wow. seeing themselves so, in the mirror, they were reinforcing that things weren't right and that they weren't making tangible, immediate progress, which of course doesn't happen. Exactly, exactly. And so we use a system called uh, electromyography, which is a, it's like a, it's like a contact sensor on the skin that you measure the muscle signals. Like, it's like a microphone, if you like, listening to the muscle signals under the surface. And we use it in the clinic and it helps patients to kind of visualize what the muscles are doing and to help them retrain. 
patients kept asking, uh, you know, what can I do to, to get one of these devices to use at home? Because at least I wouldn't have to look in the mirror. I can just get that immediate feedback about mm. how I'm, I'm progressing. And that got me thinking about, well, could we develop something that was able to be used for patients at home to do their own home-based uh, rehabilitation? And so I, I dug into that. And uh, I, anyway, so from that, I thought, well, I had this idea, it's a concept. I, I did some research. I filed the initial patent back in 2012, and that wasn't granted until about four years later. But in the meantime, got some funding to do some preliminary research, um, which was funded by Health Research. And um, yeah, that got us on our way. And uh, eventually we, we, we formed MTech in 2015-16. Um, in and, uh, and that's where we, that's where we, uh, we started this, this journey down technology development. So how many, how many people out of the population does facial paralysis affect? Is it quite a common thing or what are so the, most, the numbers? Yeah, yeah most, so most people will say the lifetime risk of, of facial paralysis due to Bell's palsy, which is the commonest cause. So Bell's palsy is a subset which comes on typically overnight. You wake up one day and bam, one side of your face just doesn't work. Uh, about 60% of facial paralysis cases are Bell's palsy. Bell's palsy itself happens in the UK. It's about 20, about between 23 and 25,000 cases a year. But fortunately, about 70% will recover spontaneously within weeks. But that wow. leaves uh, at least about 30% who, who will be left with some ongoing issue of asymmetry, spasms, uh, or uh, lack of uh, expressivity. And, and for those patients, that it's quite distressing, especially if your job uh, involves facing the public, mm. many of my patients are people like teachers, people working in sales, people working as lecturers, actors, uh, performers, often it can be career ending you know, if, you're, if you're working in a, in a role as an entertainer, for example. And, and for those patients who have this incomplete recovery, in most cases, surgery isn't an option for them because the nerve is intact, it's just a lack of coordination. And that is for those patients that we, we are looking to improve uh, their outcomes by providing them with this, this rehabilitation system. Great. So obviously that's MTech. That's that's the core focus of MTech is, is essentially building rehabilitative hardware. Now we, we we visited your office and obviously you're doing a lot of dev as well. Uh, if you just want to tell us a little bit about your what you're able to tell us, I'm sure lots of it is under NDA or confidential at the moment. If you just give us a bit of an idea about your kind of uh, product uh, product roadmap uh, products that you're hoping to get to market. Yes. So so at the at the core uh, we felt that uh, virtual reality as a, as a technology has an amazing potential because it is, of all technologies, the most intimate uh, you can imagine. It's not only worn on the body, it's worn on the face, it's also in contact with all our sensory organs. It's in contact with your eyes, with, you, uh, with visual uh, stimulus, it's in contact uh, with your ears, providing you sound, uh, but also importantly, it's in, in touch with the skin of your face, particularly around the eyes where the key muscles of expression uh, are, are located. And so the idea was to embed uh, biometric sensors within the headset, within the foam padding, that allow us to simultaneously monitor what the person is experiencing and how they're responding. Uh, so in the case of, of our, our, our improved system, which is facial paralysis, this is for patients able to actually visualize their facial muscle activity uh, whilst they're being stimulated or convert their signals into an avatar on a screen so they wouldn't have to look at their reflection in the mirror to provide them with that vital feedback as part of their, their progress. So, um, so, so that's, that's the, the facial paralysis part, but there's larger pictures and just recently received funding from the 
NIHR, National Institute of Health Research for a project around mental health, using the same underlying system. Because if a person, for example, suffers with um, a, a fear of public speaking, for example, um, it's very hard to get over that because we know that if you have a fear and you try to uh, overcome that fear, but you have a bad experience, you're less likely to try and do it again because if you, if you suddenly feel stressed and, and anxious and it overwhelms your ability to cope at that time, you'll, you'll want to not do it again. By being able to monitor a person's responses in real time <clears throat> whilst they're being stimulated by whatever challenging scenario it is, be it giving a speech or being confounded with a, confronted with a spider or being on a tall building, you have fear of heights or uh, being in a shopping center if you have fear of open spaces, we're able to monitor both the patient's uh, emotional responses through their facial expressions and their biometric responses. We're also measuring heart rates and heart rate variability from the base as well. Then we're able to tune the experience, i.e. the intensity of the experience, to their responses. So they never get overwhelmed. They're always uh, at a state where they are able to cope, go a bit further, stimulate a bit further, uh, check the response and, and titrate the experience so that they can achieve mastery uh, over time and i'm imagining that the uh, the face actually probably gives is a great spot for picking up signals uh, i know what you're working on is um picking up you know so some micro fluctuations that most of us won't be familiar with their names or or, or what the context you know most of us are familiar with perhaps eye dilation uh, pupil movements uh, obviously yes. heart, heart rate perhaps even temperature but i know there's some, some yeah. real other subtleties that uh, you're working on, which is really your sort of niche uh, value proposition. That's right, that's right. The, the facial muscles, um, they are being monitored at a thousand times a second uh, without our system. So we're, look, we're looking at really, really small changes in the electrical activity, and, and some of which are visible on, on the surface, uh, can't be seen, can be, they can be perceived because our eyes are actually sample at a much higher rate than we, than we can see on the screen, for example, when you're looking at mm. 30 times a second. Our eyes actually have a much higher frame rate. Like, and we pick up these subtleties when interacting with people, and this is why you may not realize why a person, when you meet them, you think, oh, I don't quite trust that person. Actually, you are subconsciously picking up on, on these micro expressions that a person is missing uh, without being aware of it. And obviously, actors are able to, 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 uh, to, to convince people through being able to manipulate how they present themselves in, in the world. And these micro expressions, uh, they, so they're, 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 they're normal muscles, but I think what I'm understanding is that our normal muscles are actually in constant movement, like a little bit like a wave, and because they're so small, we just can't perceive it. Absolutely. The wave is a really good analogy because if you think about the sea and the turbulent sea, there's a huge amount of activity going on underneath there, and sometimes you'll get waves that will come above and create a ripple on the surface. And if you get a confluence of, of, of waves that can cause not only a ripple in the wave, but also some, some cresting of the wave and you can see some mm -hmm. foam and that's what you're seeing on the surface where you see the gross expressions. Um, at rest, your face has an inherent, what we call tone, which mm -hmm. is like a baseline level of activity, which is where, uh, is what gives its, uh, its kind of baseline appearance. And if the tone is high, as you'll see in somebody who is stressed, it manifests as deep in the folds in the corner of the of nose and, and, and mouth. You may see some slight uh, furrowing of, of the brow, we can perceive this, these things subconsciously. And, and this is why you may see something, think, and you, somebody you know well, for example, you say, you know, what's wrong? Or uh, how are you feeling? You, if you know that person well, you perceive these things subconsciously and you, you take them in the same way you would say to somebody, well, you know, you, you're looking tired. 
Mm. You've picked up multiple subconscious little signals that uh, all coalesce together and, and communicate to you that this person isn't as they, they normally are. Uh, so it has to be contextual and it has to be multimodal. It's not just one thing. So for example, throwing up a brow could mean many things. It could mean the person is angry, yes. Mm. It could mean the person is frustrated. It could mean the person is confused. It could mean the person is looking at a bright light and is just trying to shield their, their eyes. It has to be looked at in context of what that person is experiencing, which is why VR is so powerful. You can see what the person is experiencing. Right, because you're, change, you're changing their reality, you're changing their environment. You're, and do you do a process of kind of calibration? Because like from person to person, obviously some person might get completely freaked out if there's two doors in a room. Um, do you have like a sort of calibration person to sort of det- uh, to register their, their variability or their responsive to slightly unusual scenarios? Yes, yes, absolutely. So one of the prom- problems around considering facial expression and inferring behaviors is there's been this idea in the past that everyone's the same everyone everyone responds in the same way and that clearly isn't the case uh, there's lots of good evidence now uh, coming out recently particularly the work by uh, by an amazing researcher called lisa Feldman barrett that shows that actually there isn't a universal response what was her name Most, uh, her name is lisa Feldman barrett uh, she wrote a great book called uh, How Emotions Are Made, and, and more importantly, she wrote a fantastic review of all the literature around facial expressions, uh, which was published uh, last year. And uh, what it shows is that if you just look at a face out of context of what it is experiencing, actually, most people find it very difficult to recognize what that response means. But if you understand the context to it, let's say um, what was communicated to that individual at that time, when you understand that. that individual then of course you can infer and what you can infer is, is that person expressing something positive versus negative and that person agitated versus uh, calm or relaxed or fatigued so this is uh, a much better model and it's how we interact with people around us. this is how you know when you're when your your loved one your partner your close friends is feeling the way they are because you, you you've learned a personalized model of how that person normally behaves and when they deviate from that normality then your, your, your brain is synthesizing all those signals and saying, ah, oh, this isn't normal, this person is uh, more negative than, than they normally are, or more positive, or they're more agitated, or, or, or less so. Um, so. So we're obviously we're, we're looking at uh, uh, both expressions, we're looking at movement, we're looking at uh, measures of activation of the nervous system, so, so-called physiological arousal through, through heart rates and, and heart rate parameters. Mm. Um, and, and, and the key thing is around context. So you mentioned about calibration. Yes, there is a calibration uh, uh, which is necessary. We were lucky enough to do a very large-scale study at London's uh, Science Museum uh, last summer, uh, where we had almost 800 participants. That's right. I think, I think that's, uh, we, we saw you around that time, and obviously putting on an event yes. like that is, is very, very challenging. Um, so yeah, yeah. look forward to hearing that. Yeah, we had this amazing uh, opportunity, uh, one of our research engineers, uh, if you get uh, Maridu, uh, she kind of led that in, in collaboration with our university uh, partners at Bournemouth University, and uh, where we had uh, volunteers, members of the public going through an experience that was uh, obviously had to go through formal ethics uh, approvals and people had to give informed consent. And basically we designed three experiences, a neutral, a positive and negative one, where a person had to go through a, a, a task, a memory task, and uh, we basically measured how they responded to that environment. In the case of, of the positive one, 
it's all lovely and, and light and, and funny and things mm. were happening that were, were delightful and in the next one it was the, the room was filled with with uh, it was dark with spiders and rats and uh, there was a fire started and became more and more in, intense and uh, it, it was it was really fascinating but anyway the, the results from that study were and also in addition to that the participants also filled in a number of uh, uh, questionnaires and um, validated um, psychological assessments. We're just writing up the data from that because it was a huge, I can imagine, a huge amount of data from that, that many participants, and that's going to be published later on this year. But what it does show is that you can infer a huge amount uh, up to a certain level uh, without um, uh, calibration uh, per se. But that fine grained stuff that, that we use day to day, the people that we know, that's, that requires much more sort of long term understanding. Mm. Right, so yeah, it's quite a complex process to do it in an effective way, rather than uh, a nod to uh, trying to calibrate. You know, quite yes. often, you know, these sort of, um, you, you know, you mentioned putting people through an event type experience, and, and obviously, when you go into those events, quite often you just calibrate your size, and you yes. put your arms out, stand up, turn around, that kind of stuff. Very, very, very basic yes. physical calibration, which is pretty straightforward compared to yes. when you're trying to calibrate what someone's actual emotional resonance yeah. reaction to stimuli are. Uh, there's, there's so many different ways you can. That's right. So, so, what, so, what, so one of the things we had to do, one basic calibration is just literally just what a person is and neutral and their maximum response. That we, so we, that's a simple thing we, that we do because that way you can, you can now, when they're in experience, when they express uh, something, see how that, how that relates to their maximum response. And that's mm -hmm. kind of a, sort of a personal normalization. But then there's, there are other things as well. So as well as, as being experienced, they also watched the standardized stimuli that were, have been validated in other studies to allow us to, again, to titrate their response in the VR experience to their response to um, uh, these stimuli, which were informed for videos, actually. So it was a, it was a really complex study to, to conduct and a uh, huge, huge volume of data to go through as well. Yeah. It's the first time we ever did in our system where we had people in the field, the data was being uh, mapped, annotated, sent into the, into the cloud, obviously securely, and then uh, uh, installed, and then for, for subsequent processing. So we're starting to get into that area of kind of new realities that can be created by VR. You know, we're starting to talk about those kind of mental reactions, which is, you know, obviously we're, we're, we're just at the very early, early stages with that. That's why it's fascinating to talk to someone like you, because, you know, you're actually measuring what people's responses are. You know, from my side, Future Visual, you know, we're actually looking at creating uh, environments that are more specific for a task. Um, I mean, one of our briefs was around, you know, can we had a, a, a brief uh, from a behavior change client and the, the brief was, can you get people to reveal their true behavior? And uh, you know, we started to think about it. Okay, God, how do we do this? Do we do a kind of role playing thing? And we ended up building a, you know, essentially it was like a location based piece of entertainment. I don't know if you've tried the void. Have you tried the void? Uh I haven't tried the void, no. I've tried uh, some similar things. Uh, it's closed down now, but in Los Angeles, uh, I think it was about a year and a half ago, there was a, uh, a location-based experience there which involved you having a, a backpack uh, and, and, and a gun. And it was amazing, actually. A really, really immersive uh, yeah. experience. So, um, sorry. Yeah, no, you can't, no, can't, I mean, I think your, your stuff, I think, is fascinating. Uh, you know, we, we, we met, uh, I think it was last year, and, and had a demo of your system for multi-person VR. Mm. And I think the synergy between what you're doing and, and what we're doing is, is interesting. And 
what you mentioned before around trying to understand a person's true behavior is, is fascinating. I think that the best, the best way to understand a person's true behavior is seeing them under stress. Yeah. Um, we're seeing a bit of that just now with what's yes, going on with, yes, yeah, with uh, you know, seeing how some people uh, respond in a, in a very, um, yeah, in a very interesting way that relates to their underlying principles of how they see themselves and their place in society. Yeah, well, I mean, we could go and talk about that thread. Let's uh, stick on the thread, which we've just started to dive into, which was um, creating sort of slightly new realities using VR. I mean, I read a study, I think about two years ago, where there was a VR company in association with a medical outfit, um, I think in Austria, somewhere like that. And they were actually building uh, representations, fictional representations of... um, let's call them people's demons or people's shadow characters. So again, in the sort of mental field, if someone had a very acute shadow that was causing them particular mental distress, um, you know, this is the kind of thing you might start to talk to a therapist about. So this was another slightly more uh, extreme or intense version of that where they actually created, it's a bit like your room with spiders and trying to gauge someone's reality, they were creating a visual representation of it, presumably so the person could interact with it in a kind of guided context, have a yes. conversation with it, and then go, oh, that, that thing isn't real and elusive. I mean, that, that feels pretty experimental uh, to me. Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. That was just, I think there was, there was a study done, I'm not sure it's the same one that you're mentioning now, uh, at King's, and this is for patients with uh, schizophrenia who hear voices, hmm. because one of the most distressing things about schizophrenia is, is that you have this voice inside your head and what they were doing was to embody that voice into an external character, an avatar, that had the participant with the therapist describe what that person would look like based on that voice. Uh, and they would actually synthesize a voice so that the therapist could speak in the voice of, of the oh, voice. wow, okay. And so now the person could learn how to um, uh, respond to, to the voice. So that voice is telling you, you know, you're, you're terrible, why did you do that? You're, 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 you're an evil person. The person was being trained how to respond to those voices and actually to either to ignore them or to... Um, uh, to face to them, to, to address them, or to go, yes, that's not right. Exactly, exactly. So, so and, uh, fascinating. I mean, it's, it's an ongoing project just now, I think, at, at King's in conjunction with UCL, I believe. And I think it's a really, really interesting idea because one of the most distressing things about schizophrenia is the idea of having this persistent negative voice in your head telling mm. you that you're bad, you're evil, you're rubbish, and, and, and worse. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, we're really getting into, you know, the, the psychology of humanity, and obviously that's sort of mirrored perhaps by a growth um, in the medical practice at large uh, around... Um, what we'd call, what I'd call, you know, more normal treatments. Like you see treatments for depression, which are like, well, why don't you go and uh, do some singing or let's uh, talk about it. And there's sort of huge growth in mindfulness, which I think is really encouraging because, you know, traditionally our pedagogy or our our, um, medical pedagogy has been, um, you know, here, take this, do that. And we're seeing much more of a, from what I can see, a much more of a a swing or an openness um, to, just normal activities, which have perhaps have been lost in our uh, uh, scientific industrial, um, you know, process industrial uh, driven society. 
Um, how do you see the rise of sort of mindfulness as a treatment in, in the medical pr pr profession? I think it's a really important uh, uh, step forward, recognizing that the, the mind has got an incredible role to play. I mean, I'll never forget seeing uh, a chap when I was in training who had been uh, bitten, he'd been bitten by a shark in Thailand. And so he had a huge chunk of tissue in his, uh, by this, this shark in his thigh. And, um, you know, this goes to show how the mind, you know, he, he said he felt nothing, felt no pain at the time because he, he was obviously wanting to survive. Clearly, events can happen to a person, but your perception of the events has a really important role to play. And, and this, is, this is how you, your mind uh, has a top-down role to play on, uh, on how you experience your bodily symptoms, and vice versa. Uh, you know, we know now that there are more nerves going from the gut to the brain, from the brain to the gut. Um, you know, we, we talk about gut feelings, and, and actually, that's now recognised as being a, a thing. The, the vagus nerve, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. We have we have, we have multiple uh, connections going from this very very core thing that we use to ingest energy that allows us to live, mm. communicating, communicating with, with our brain. And so, recognising that you have to start off from a perspective of, of calm and uh, understanding your inner your your inner uh, arousal levels, if you like to be able to go to the next level of then how you interact with the world. And this is kind of course what we're building because being able to, to actually give you better feedback, it's really hard. I don't know if you ever tried meditating uh, or tried mindfulness, it's actually really, really difficult to, to get going and people often uh, lose confidence and, and uh, get frustrated and, and stop. Um, mm. Being able to, to add some degree of feedback so you can learn, that's, that's a really powerful way of, of making progress because if you can feel you're making progress you'll be motivated to, to do it again and do it mm. again do it again yeah we we react very um powerfully don't we to an ind indicator of progress you know as as humans if we're like if we're if we're told oh you did better this time then yeah we're so primitive in so many ways aren't we like we are, because, we because, are. When, because when we see that we get a little we get a little dopamine hit and we're like oh <laughs> i'm gonna do that again exactly. right? Exactly, and, we, and we, you know, we can see how that can be really, really successfully, successfully um, uh, applied in certain things, both in the commercial world and, and, in, and in healthcare, like. So, you'll see that if you have a means, if you're trying to, to lose weight, for example, you have a scale that gives you some kind of feedback on your, on your progress, but we know that that's not enough. You also need some other forms of reinforcement and support, which is why things like weight watching uh, clubs can be really, really beneficial. Mm. Um, if, if it's something in the, in the form of, of, of an app, People now gamify apps to give you that, that variable reward that we know that gives people <laughs> incentives to keep going, which is what gambling casinos know about, which is yeah. what apps like yeah. Ram know about in yeah. terms of all oh, likes that I get and this sort of thing. These these mechanics, which are now being really understood well, some great books recently published about, about this stuff. So one by uh, a chap called DJ um, uh, Fogg uh, called Tiny Habits, and he talks about uh, a lot about the the mechanics by which people form. Uh, their behaviours. Um, another one by a chap called um, Nir Eyal, E-Y-A-L, uh, called Hooked. Uh, he was uh, involved in lots of habit-forming apps uh, as a consultant back in the day, and he's now yeah, in his uh, the, uh, payback time trying to <laughs> help people to become uh, unhooked from, from many of these, these apps that are now running lots of people's lives. Yeah. So, yeah, we've touched on perception of events and really how... Um, 
you know, the mind's perception of what's going on is really at the core of everyone's experience. And obviously what you're doing is trying to uh, help people, empower people uh, deal with some of that. Uh, if we go, if we go into the sort of the week we're in now, you know, the, the larger picture of, of COVID-19, um, how are you seeing the, obviously you're inside the medical profession. How, how are you seeing the sort of general uh, response or sort of mustering to, uh, to what could be coming? So it's, it's, it's an interesting time right now. And obviously only, uh, I guess, the future will, will judge actions and decisions that have made up until now. Um, we, we do know that it's likely to be uh, quite severe uh, for some people. Um, all we have is evidence of what's gone on in other countries to look at the trajectory of, of number of cases that we'll see. Um, we, we, we can see writ large how uh, our brains look at uh, the signals around us and we see people behave in a certain way. Uh, we, we take notice of that since if you see people you know, panic buying things, you think, well, something's going on here and, and I need to do the same thing just in case they know something I don't know. Uh, you know, they would get every, every single person who's alive today is alive because one of their ancestors saw something that was potentially negative and moved away from it. And, and mm. that's what allowed them in their genes. And, and this is why we have this, this bias towards paying attention to, to other people's behaviors, this sort mm. of uh, form behavior. Um, and, and it's worth bearing in mind, one of the things that I worry about a lot around this time is that um, a lot of the, the fear that's being sort of promulgated can have negative outcomes because it creates stress and stress has an effect itself on the immune system. Mm. So, so I think- oh, it, could actually, it could actually lower the immune system and make people more vulnerable, you know, when you're a sort oh, of knife edge case. Yes, it's been known for many years, the, the, the stress response, one of the key things around it, cortisol. Cortisol is a, is a substance produced in the body, which is in the suppressant, so it suppresses the immune system. This is why we know that people with mental health conditions, for example, uh, with, a, with a chronic mental health condition plus one other medical condition such as diabetes or heart disease, your life expectancy can be shortened by up to 20 years. So right. it, is, it is an issue, which is one of the reasons why there's an old saying, which is uh, uh, don't let anybody walk through your mind with their dirty feet. You know, be careful about what things you allow into yeah. your mind in terms of the things you read, things that you interact with uh, online. Because it can it can solidly your experience and, and actually solidly the, the experience of people around you. Because if they make you feel uh, fearful, then you can spread that to other people as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've, I've been reading a few things online, and obviously, you know, I've, I've tried to limit my online exposure a bit because everyone's posting views and craziness. And I, I read a very moving thing this week actually that it was uh, someone had written. I think it was someone called uh, Kirsten. I can't pronounce under surname, surname, it's like S Y N Z. I'll, I believe when one does a podcast, one sticks it in the comments afterwards. So I'll take out the name and stick it in the comments. Um, but she'd written this piece that was a message as if it was a message from COVID-19. And it was, uh, it, it was saying, I'm, you know, I'm here to make you stop. You know, we've had, we've had wildfires burning in Australia. You haven't listened. We've had this going on. You haven't listened. I'm, I'm actually here to help. Um, so, you know, although we've got this very um, scary three-month, 12-month, 18-month window coming up, mm -hmm. you look at sort of, you know, the, the Earth as a holistic system, more kind of like the Gaia, perhaps, model. Yeah. 
you know, this is just a small insight into how nature runs things. And, you know, with our, our little industrialized heads running around thinking we're being super clever and there's going to be this much growth in aviation over the years. It's like nature's just covered. I mean, this is just not even an appetizer, is it, to what, what could happen when, when nature turns. So, and I think that potentially, depending on your worldview, I think personally, I feel that actually this is quite an interesting moment to us to, to enforced reassessment of, mm. of values and actions because you know when you look at what's happening economically and you know you listen to economists and bankers and you know everyone thinks they're very clever you know having these yeah. oh don't worry we're we're re-leveraged and we've got all these financial mechanisms and da 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 and it's the same old story every time isn't it it's like really yeah. com really complex smoke and mirrors to go actually yeah. you're just you're just ballooning it and yes you know, some of the things that are, are, are about to go down. I mean, I read something this morning where a fairly senior banker said, this is going to make uh, Lehman's look like a child's play. And when you read mm -hmm. statements like that, you're like, oh, okay, this, this, this really is going to be heavy. Um, yes. You know, the sell-off in the States and the Dow, it's got a faster trajectory than the 29 depression. And, you know, a lot of companies are massively over leveraged because they've gorged on cheap debt. Uh, interesting, the response from governments and central banks is going to be like, drop the interest rate, have some more money. Uh, and <laughs> we've, we've just got wafer thin leverage opportunities this time, you know, that there's really nowhere to go. It's kind of like, yeah. no, this doesn't work. And, you know, when you look at the, the, the bigger picture of economies, growing in the way that they have done there just comes a point where you know the rubber has been burning on the road and eventually you run out of rubber and you get to your wheel hub and it's like yes. okay how how long can you make this wheel hub last or because if you keep ragging it on on a wheel hub in the way you are you're going to be down to that axle and it's all going to fall apart so some yes. part of me does think that this is going to be a very interesting uh, it, it needs to be or could be an interesting recalibration of of uh, economic systems and, and, and more importantly, I think personal interactions and values, right? Because we all run around, you know, our, our primary goal as humans is to try and be happy. We just have come up with this slightly tortuous, long-winded, uh, list-orientated, goal-orientated way of doing it. So uh, I, I wonder, yeah. I, I mean, you probably, perhaps you haven't had, had time to, to look at it within those holistic systems. You mean, you, you're, you're very busy with the company and you, I believe you know you're being redrafted to uh, to actually go and help with this crisis. Yeah, I, I think there's a few things you said there are really really fascinating. I'd love to first of all if you could put a link to, to that article. I'd love to. I'd love to see it. Which one? The, uh, the story is if it was the from coming yeah, from COVID. Yeah, yeah. because I, I do I do believe that although this is going to be terrible and and, and the, the the death and suffering that's coming is going to be awful. Uh, like most things that have a negative consequence, there will also be some, some upsides. And we're already seeing some of those just now, certainly within the health system. I mean, one of the reasons why uh, we formed the company was to help people, but also to recognize that if you could help people help themselves, that's much more powerful. And sometimes you don't need a person to travel all the way uh, across, across the country or, or mm. for an hour or two to see a clinician. We have technology, we can do this remotely, we can do this from people's homes, and we're already seeing this now because we've now shut down much of our routine activity. And so for patients who've had treatments, but who need follow-up, we're now being we're now using telemedicine. So this has been, this although awful, this is going to change the way we're thinking about healthcare because we're now recognizing the power of 
remote assessments to minimize you know, all, the, all the greenhouse gases and, and uh, waste of, of, of materials for people traveling to and from hospital. We're already seeing the, uh, the move to uh, working from home, and, and that's something that's been known about for many, many years. IBM for nearly 30 years. Jason Fried wrote his book, uh, Remote, which I read uh, some years ago. And you know, we're now recognizing that the culture can change. You don't always be co-located in the same place. Uh, and, and that will, I think, be a system change after this crisis is, is over. We're also seeing that if we do that, there's also an important need for us to avoid social isolation. Because whilst mm. uh, we communicate as we are just now via Zoom or similar uh, teleconferencing tools, there is still a need, a basic fundamental need for us to interact uh, uh, with people on a social basis because, uh, and, and we'll talk about it later on, but uh, you know, one of the issues that we know about is that bigger than alcohol, bigger than um, heart disease, the biggest cause of, of, of death is loneliness. And this is a work that was, that was presented by uh, a chap called John Capioco. Uh, he's, he's a psychologist who sadly died uh, last year but again i'll send you a link to this fantastic TED talk about that um we need to enable people to interact with others because without that we, we die or we, we become unwell mm. in terms of the, the the global uh scheme i think it is the case that this is about resetting things it's about recognizing that we are one system and that um it, equilibrium has to come at some point sometimes it, it means having to take drastic action so yes if densities are too high, then populations will, will recalibrate. We know this in a petri dish. We know this here within a within a company. We know this on, on a national level as well and on a global level. Um, so, in some ways, it's although it's painful and scary, it's fascinating to see nature in action at scale. I mean, the world at the moment is the petri dish, right? And, we've, it and nature's it coming in with the big pipette and going, "You need some of this." It um, is. It's, it's, it's really interesting seeing how. Um, you know, I don't know if you've seen the reports how in, in Venice uh, the, the fish are returning to the canals there, the waters. Is, is, but very is, quickly, you know, very quickly, just like a couple of weeks. Yeah, very quickly. And this is the beautiful thing about, about nature is that uh, when, when there's been a resetting, and we've seen in the past when whale numbers have dropped really, really drastically, only within a few years they're back to where they were before because nature's got a huge capacity for, for buffering uh, the system. Yeah, so it, I mean, I, I, I really hope that some new, uh, uh, you know, way of, of interacting um, and business not as usual, uh, it perhaps needs to be our, our, our new modus operandi. Uh, you know, the early signs are that this is going to be a significant enough hit that the, um, the, 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 the counterpoint of business as usual will get a bit of a voice. You know, this is this is. You know, even the most steadfast capitalist, um, efficiency-based kind of operative is going to have a bit of a scare with, uh, yes. with what we're going through. And it's interesting what you mentioned about, you know, the value of personal interaction. And, you know, as with much of life, the, um, the joy or the essence of it is kind of right in front of you. But we don't actually stop to just enjoying it because we're, you know, we're so conditioned from our from our list building ancestry, you know, so yes. we, we, there's no reason to beat ourselves up about it. You know, this is just the way we've evolved and we've evolved to hunter gather, list, achieve, that's da da da, but no one sort of stops to go, okay, it's, it's all right, we've got enough now. You know, you need to either help people who haven't got enough or you need to yes. 
sort of reach into your yourself and your happiness levels a, a little bit more. I mean, one thing you said earlier on, which I, which I would I would um, pick up on, which is around the the goal of life. Um, so, so I, I would I would posit that the goals of life isn't actually happiness at all. Mm. You know, on on a on a purely objective level, there's nothing normal about happiness. In the same way, there's more, nothing normal about unhappiness. They both have normal states. Happiness cannot maintain, can't sustain, because it is it's not a, a state of equilibrium. Mm. It's 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 uh, unbalanced as, as being unhappy, <clears throat> and. The only thing that, that should be persistent is a sense of progress. People want to feel a sense of progress. And, and the reason why, and this has been researched numerous times before, how if you look at somebody who has experienced a, a significant positive event and a significant negative event, and look at them a year later. So in, in this case, the study was looking at people who won the lottery versus people who had experienced a major limb amputation, like they lost a leg. Yes. And you look immediately after that event and look at their levels of, quality of life and, and self-rated happiness. If you lost, lost a limb, obviously you're going to feel very, very low, very depressed. Just one lottery, you're going to feel incredibly positive, uh, uh, happy, and enthusiastic. A year, just a year later, people equilibrate. Those who were, who'd lost a leg were feeling much better about themselves and positive about the future. Those who'd won lottery were actually feeling much less positive about the future. You know, you look at the graph of income versus happiness, and it tops out at about $60,000 per household, which is about mm. $30,000 per if you're thinking about a nuclear family. Uh, and there's a reason for that, that if, you're, if you have not very much, of course, there's a correlation between your income and your levels of self-rated happiness. But it tops out at a relatively low level. Yeah, it's about, six, it's about 60K, isn't it? Sort of life doesn't right. get much. Yeah, right, yeah. And so what people really want is a sense of progress more than anything else. And uh, for many people who have a goal around uh, money, once you've topped out at that level, you've got all the money. They want to make progress, which is why they, they go off and do crazy things, such as, uh, um, you know, well, all the crazy things that we, we see people do, you know, buying multiple, uh, multiple jets and mm. yachts. Well, that's actually, I mean, that kind of, you're starting to go into craving there. I mean, you're quite right to pick up on my point of happiness. Perhaps rather than happiness, it would, a better description would be sort of uh, imbalance or inequilibrium. Because I would also yeah. count counter that perhaps progress and this constant need for progress means one is searching to go forward and therefore one is not living in the present. You mentioned uh, meditation. I've done quite a lot of meditation. So, um, you know, and that is obviously is all about being in the moment and not about craving yeah. delusion. Um, so yeah, happiness is perhaps a, is a, is a, an abnormal state as you, as you've mentioned. So, but, but more importantly, it's about being in balance. And I think yes. in balance can feel like making like progress because as humans, we have these craving and delusion tendencies. We can be up and down, up and down, up and down. Mm. Remain in balance. That feels like, yes. does feel like progress because you're able to absorb what's going on. It, it, actually, it actually is on, on a purely thermodynamic basis because the only thing that you can rely on is the fact that the world is chaotic. It, the entropy is increasing in the world. Therefore, if the entropy is increasing in the world, the only way to stay in balance is for you to be able to absorb those changes, those fluctuations that are going to be hitting you from different directions and either to absorb them or to integrate them into your life. And that's and did, you, did you describe that as a thermodynamic? Yes, yes. Okay, so, so, so how I think about things is that, um, so fundamentally, obviously energy can't be created or destroyed. Mm -hmm. And that the universe is expanding, therefore entropy is increasing. Therefore, for an individual to stay in thermodynamic balance, 
then they have to, to uh, take more energy from the environment than they are using, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're experiencing chaotic events, you have to either be able to absorb them yeah. into your parts or to integrate them. And integrating them, what that means is basically uh, uh, acceptance of, of the experiences, acceptance of the, of the, of the, of the toils and, and uh, trials and tribulations of, of the world. That's part of what is being taught with, with meditation. It's about acceptance. And that's how you, you maintain that, that balance, that contentment. That is fascinating. I'm so glad we touched on that because I've never heard, you know, meditative state de uh, described in a sort of with a, from a scientific perspective. So accurately, you know, a th thermodynamic state of the world and that if we are having to absorb chaotic events, then we have to do something with that energy. So that's, uh, that's very, very interesting. I like that. So, um, I feel we had a great little segue there. So just going back to your work, what are the, what are the technical challenges or, to your work? Um, so, oh God, where do you start? I mean, there's so many. Um, we have a technology that's worn on the face. So fundamentally, you have an issue around comfort. You have an issue around fit. People's faces vary tremendously in their shape and their form. Um, the uh, Latency is always an issue as well when you're doing any kind of communication. So we're, if I, you know, as we're speaking by, by, by Zoom just now, the maximum latency we can have between the words leaving my mouth and entering your ear is about 150 milliseconds. Because if it's longer than that, what happens is that we end up talking over each other. And we've experienced that sometimes before when, when, when you have a, a long distance call and the, the time that signals take to travel from one to the other is too long. and, and the, the voices end up uh, overlapping. Uh, uh, that's going to be improved, obviously, with, with 5G, make the kind of things that we're talking about in terms of with what your company is doing, which is amazing, great collaboration, and what we're doing in terms of enabling that uh, more intimate uh, interaction. Those things are, are vital. Um, the other challenges are around, uh, obviously, distribution, because obviously it's hardware, and, and hardware comes with, with quite a cost. Mm. Um, this is why we're starting off with a relatively narrow niche, initially facial paralysis, and then moving on to, to mental health conditions. Uh, you know, in the future, we're going to look back at this time just now and think, well, of course, you know, so much of what we're doing in terms of uh, both business travel, um, uh, in terms of uh, meetings, is to get around this bandwidth issue of, of interaction. You know, when mm. we speak face to face, it's mm. a very, very wide bandwidth communication of, of the verbal and non-verbal communication. Uh, the reason why we don't seal important deals by email is because we want more bandwidth in that communication. So we might move something like a, a phone call from a phone call to a Skype. But ultimately, the deal isn't signed until you meet that person, look them in the eye and, and shake their hands. That's yeah. about increasing that interaction. Sealing the deal, isn't it? I love the description there of uh, emotional bandwidth. It's like you'll only seal the deal when you feel you've kind of got... Yeah, the, the organic kind of a, a stamp. Absolutely, Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things that, that makes, uh, you know, the technologies that you're, that you're developing, that we're developing, I guess, uh, we're not competing with, with the telephone, we're competing with, uh, with, with airplanes and, and, and hotels. And, uh, well, and uh, well, this week we've had quite a, a, a tailwind. I mean, again, it goes back to that sort of uh, intervention by COVID-19 and it going, no, no, the, 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 this air travel is not good. It's not yes. working. 
I mean, we had a we had a board meeting yesterday, and obviously, I had to sort of give us sort of a short term, medium term, long term view. And you know, the the short term view is that you know we could rush in trying to duplicate those office type tools for immersive collaboration, but there's companies out there doing that, and it's not kind of our, our core value. Um, you know, our, our medium term view, which is of um, pulling people together in high quality spaces that are relative to their work. So, you know, if you were surgeons training, it would be providing a surge, uh, 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 an operating theatre. You know, if it was uh, uh, real estate, it would be providing access to the drawing. So contextual environment, but our core technology is, a, is always improving the linking up of VR AR desktop and mobile, but uh, you know, in my in my assessment yesterday, I had to say, you know, I think what's going on in the world has given our collaborative tool sector, you know, a much greater tailwind than just kind of organic growth. You know, at the moment, you have conversations with people, and obviously, there's a lot of enthusiasm because it's VR. You're doing collaboration; it's great, and then it is always a challenge, as you all know, of demonstrating ROI, getting the them to actually put the money down. Whereas I think yes. now, I think now, uh, you know, our, the relevance of our offering has gone much further up up the agenda. I mean, at a primary level, it's like, well, we can actually make meetings happen that can't happen at the moment. You know, you, you can facilitate events that can't happen, and yeah. uh, and then if you go into that sort of medium term view, it's like, oh, well, even if you do want to have physical events again in the future, if you build or replicate your event using our system, then that's open 365, 24 seven, and also as a plan B to these kind of events. But, but hopefully, as we just discussed, it actually needs to a new way of people doing business. It's like, actually, I don't need to go and, and fly around. I mean, potentially when you still come to, to sealing that deal, you might, you know, people are potentially going to want FaceTime, but a lot of the other kind of legwork and endless uh, yes. time, time that goes into travel for other meetings. So I think COVID in a way has gone no to airlines and, and hopefully it's, it, it's given us its uh, unacknowledged endorsement. I mean, yes. building collaborative technology, I feel is only one of the very few sectors this week where you can go, oh, actually that's kind of good for our long-term view. Yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously the, the other benefit is, is, is around training. Because you know, once you've been able to to digitise an experience, you can now play it back. That's once right. You can play it back, now asynchrony, so you can now have people. Uh, you know, in your case, for example, you mentioned about say a real estate thing or surgical training. You can be able to digitise an experience and, and have somebody observe it. Uh, and you know, we're, we're primates. You know, monkey see, monkey do. We're able to to synthesise this information embody it and then and then carry out that ourselves so well, there's a uh, there's a shout out because we're, we're talking to innovate uk at the moment one of the the, the people there matt sansom um alerted us to the fact that there's obviously a very urgent call out from the government to manufacturers for building ventilators now obviously there'll be a bunch of components that have the the ce stamp you know that approved but there's going to be a, a bunch of other designs that are a bit more Apollo 13 in their style. Yes. You know, we've got, we've got this box, we've got this tubing, and we've got this gaffer tape, you know, can we build a ventilator? Because we're going to need, potentially need a lot of them. Um, so we put ourselves forward as being able to provide training on any new ventilator system that gets constructed because within Vision XR, we'll be able to have the equipment, we'll be able to be running, we'll be able to have, you know, two or three people doing the training 
uh, and those rooms would be duplicated. You know, if you're needing to train hundreds of people yeah. uh, a day, uh, yes. potentially we could scale up to go, okay, you know, you're, you're, you're from a, a medical background. I mean, you might be getting nutritionists and orthopedics and dentists in at this point, depending on how, how, uh, how high the sombrero goes. Um, but yeah, it's, it was, you know, we'd, we'd love to get involved with that. And obviously yeah. it, would be, it would be, you know, it doesn't need to be super polished. It's that what's the best no. way of getting this done, no. quick, done quickly. That's, so. that's fantastic. I hadn't thought about that as, a, as an angle. I mean, one of the things that thinking about this um, on Monday, I said we're having our, uh, some of our, our training uh, for this is beginning, but actually by definition, all healthcare professions, professionals are, are potentially super spreaders because we're interacting with lots and lots of people mm. and it would be better if the training could be, could be done in a way virtually and VR would be uh, potentially a great way of doing that. There is actually, I, I saw, there is a, a Facebook group uh, where people are sharing ideas for how to um, put together uh, these um, Apollo 13 uh, style uh, interventions to help people if resources are, are too limited. Um, so yeah, an, an example of, of how technology can be used to share information in a much more effective way. Mm, great. So last couple of questions. If you, if you had 100 million to spend on health tech for the UK and no red tape, what, what would you spend it on? <laughs> um, Hundred minutes on, on health tech. So, if, if if you look at the top ten causes of premature death, you'll see that seventy percent of them have a strong element around emotions. You know, we think about heart disease. You know, that's been known for many years. You know, certain type of personality types uh, causes high blood pressure, uh, higher risk of chronic disease. Um, look at obesity. That's or self-medicating with food for issues that are emotional in their origin in many cases. Think about smoking, again, it's self-medication with, with, with tobacco and nicotine to try to manage uh, stress and, and, and emotional responses. Alcohol, same sort of thing. Uh, and then many cancers have a, a correlation with, with things like obesity. Um, so emotions have a really powerful role to play in health outcomes. And we know that the two are synergistic, poor mental health, plus any one of major the major health conditions will also reduce quality of life and actual uh, uh, premature risk of premature death. So that has to be put front and center. If I was going to spend 100 million pounds, I would put it into early childcare hmm. because that that's the point at which we need to recognise. I mean, you know, you have to have a license to to, to drive a car, you have a license to to have a dog. Uh, there's no license to understand. I mean, I, I'm a parent. I have, I've got two boys. I would do things very very differently. Uh, now, with all I've learned about about psychology and, and mental health in terms of, I mean, I'm lucky that just by by fluke, I can't claim any 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 uh, credit. Obviously, I've got an amazing wife who's done a wonderful job in my absence in many cases mm. in bringing up these these two boys. But I recognise how things could go wrong so easily, and the the things that are done at the early stage have a massive impact on that person's individual in terms of how they eat, how they manage stress how they manage their interactions and how they see themselves as a role as a, as a player in society so i put all of that money actually into early childcare we nice. recognize now in 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 case of even if within the womb there are changes that happen to that, to that fetus related mm. to the normal stress mm. uh, mother breast she produces hormones in the book in, in the blood that will go to the uh and, and responses that the fetus will experience through sounds and, and vibrations that will affect how genes are, uh, are expressed. It's called epigenetics, mm. and will 
cause that child to respond in certain ways, such as their responses to, to, to novelty, their ability to delay gratification, their ability to, um, to, to uh, pay attention. All these things are affected and, and, and how they, they manage their food are affected by uh, things that happen even before they're born. And, and so we need to make sure that, that, that children and actually pregnant women in particular have as, uh, as comfortable as possible uh, an experience as well as recognizing what's important, i.e. the long term. And at, so what, at what sort of age do you think like, our, our habits and our, our world view of, of life is kind of ingrained? I mean, I know obviously that, that's not a, it's not a fixed point. We can change it. There's, yeah. you know, obviously up to the age of three, five, seven, we're on what I would describe perhaps incorrectly yeah. is unconscious of a lot of it. You know, we are, yeah. we're not, not doing a conscious analysis of, of threats and dangers. Uh, at what sort of age do you think most our sort of compass is, is set? So, uh, so the research, the epigenetic, epigenetic search research shows that uh, things that happen in the womb will affect uh, uh, behaviors such as um, uh, diet, uh, uh, how much uh, fats a person will store, for example, uh, on consuming and stress responses. I think that if you can intervene at the early stage, even before school, so between ages of, of birth and three, mm. just thinking the, the additive effects and the direction of that individual's life, that that will have the biggest impact. But that's not to say that people are fixed, but I think if you were going to choose a time point at which to, to, to have an impact, it would be really early on because um, it's, it's much harder to change uh, behaviours that have become uh, ingrained automatic. Got you. Well, that's um, that's lovely to hear. I mean, that truly is uh, building new realities. You know, if you put the put the whole hundred million on 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 children that aren't even born yet, and um, you know, aiming aiming for a better environment and better life for them. Uh, I'm just conscious of the time. We've, we've been going over for over an hour, so I feel that we could talk more and more so i look forward to doing a, a, another one with you sometime but um charles thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat this morning no problem tim it's been lovely talking to you and uh, i look forward to talking to you again